Welcome to FRT, the IS podcast on finance, regulation, and technology. I'm Mina Lohr, Senior Research Assistant on the Digital Finance Team, and I'm excited to introduce our guests for this episode, Andy Wolnaut and Sonia Kelly from Women's World Banking. Andy is the Executive Vice President of Global Advocacy, leading their global advocacy efforts, which include marketing and communications, policy, financial industry and network, global coalitions, and research. Prior to joining Women's World Banking, Andy was Visa's Regional Vice President and Head of Corporate Affairs for Asia, Central and Eastern Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Sonia Kelly is the Director of Research and Advocacy, leading their research on the financial sector, policy trends, financial service providers, and end users in order to advocate for women's financial inclusion. Prior to Women's World Banking, Sonia advised the U.S. Department of State on strategies surrounding digital finance, served as the Director of Research at the Center of Financial Inclusion at Axion, and held consulting roles at the World Bank and CGAP. While at CFI, Sonia actually partnered with the IAF on a report series researching digital finance and inclusion, and we're excited to have her back to share her expertise with us today. Andy and Sonia, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Great to be here. Thank you. So for our listeners who are only recently hearing about your organization, could you give us some background information on the work of Women's World Banking? Yeah, sure. I, I can take that. Um, so Women's World Banking is um, you know, roughly a 40-year-old 40, 40 global nonprofit. Um, and our, our role is is simple but but difficult. It's, it's uh, to create greater gender equality um, around the world through financial inclusion. And we do this uh, because our financial systems are not inclusive and, and are unfair. And as a result, more than a billion women uh, around the world are excluded from access to and usage of formal financial services. And the result of that is that they're unable to participate fully in their economies, um, and that's to all our detriment. And we believe that everyone, in particular women and girls, should have equal opportunity to participate in and benefit from uh, economic and societal growth and prosperity, and to do that with, with both security and dignity. Um, and also when that happens, uh, communities thrive, children go to school, uh, food gets put on the table, businesses are created, people are employed, and it creates a multiplier effect of positive um, societal growth. So we, we work primarily with financial services providers and pro- uh, policymakers in emerging markets. And uh, we try to create the conditions uh, for a more equitable financial system in broad areas like um, things like societal norms, um, you know, ensuring that women have um, their own legal identities as well as agency over their own lives and property, which isn't always a given in every country you come to around the world. Uh, we look at policy areas, um, so we work with policymakers to create systems that enable women to access financial services, for example, through a, a government-to-person payment, which is, which is often the first starting point for a lot of women around the world. Uh, we look at financial solutions. Um, we work with more than 35 um, financial service providers uh, in our network uh, around the world to design financial solutions that are designed for women, uh, because if a product is designed in a gender-neutral way, then it's designed for a man all our research points to this. We, we look at technology, um, so tracking and using emerging technologies to understand their impact on women's economic participation. Sonia's done some really great research around um, algorithmic bias, around credit scoring, which is, which is an interesting topic. Uh, we look at data. You know, we, we find that FSPs, financial services providers, often ignore women, um, especially low-income women. And we want financial services providers to look at their, their data, disaggregate it by, by sex, and understand women customers more. And then on top of that leadership, um, we work to try and make um, financial systems um, more equitable by having more women in positions of power, both at the policy level, but also in financial services providers. 
Um, and then impact investing. We have a fund. We we put our money where our mouth is, and um, we invest in enterprises to ensure that they uh, they pay attention to women. So a lot going on. A bit wordy, but but that's that's us in a, a rather large nutshell. Thanks, Andy. The multiplier effect that you mentioned is really interesting, and I'm sure will continue to come up throughout this conversation, as well as where you said that all your research points to that if something is created to be gender neutral, it's created for men, and where that disaggregated data really comes into play. So when we talk about financial inclusion and women's empowerment, they're both very broad terms that can encompass so many aspects of the financial industry. This can make it seem like a really daunting task. So how do you narrow down from the multitude of topics that surround inclusion to decide on what you all want to work on? And what does that research look like prior to embarking on a project or launching a program? I think that's me as the director of research. So We started at Women's World Banking by choosing six markets to really focus on, not to say that our work is only in these six markets, but we we do deep dives in in these markets, and that's Mexico, Nigeria, Egypt, India, Bangladesh, and Indonesia going essentially west to east. Um, The majority of the one billion women who remain outside of the formal financial system today can be found in these markets. And to us, these represent the biggest opportunity for financial services institutions like IIF members um, to reach those women, women who aren't yet engaged customers of banks. Um, our research shows that women have a high need for financial services, but they've been overlooked, as Andy said, to the detriment of both financial institutions and also the women themselves. So We look at those six markets and then we look at the topics that might be most relevant to moving forward financial inclusion and therefore women's economic empowerment in those markets. And those topics are anything from looking at the transition to digital and transition to digital platforms for women engaging in their businesses and therefore what the opportunity is for digital financial services to come alongside of and exist on top of those platforms. Or for example, in India, the universal ID system and what that means for possibilities for women to begin to engage with the formal financial system for the first time. Or in Indonesia, we're looking at um, rules around accounts and how those rules structure what women decide to do with their money and and what the possibilities are for for women to engage with, with financial services for example, if they get a government-to-person payment. And so we have a diversity of, of topics along those lines that make a big difference in those six markets. And just to, to add, add to that, um, what we're increasingly trying to look at as well is what we're calling sort of intersectional topics, um, where it's the, the impact on women and financial inclusion um, in other areas. So, for example, because of um, COVID and the lockdowns, we all saw the news that domestic violence um, against women was on the increase. And so what we, we're starting to look at and would like to do more about is looking at the, the impact of financial inclusion on uh, intimate partner violence, for example, and whether it helps or hinders, you know, women with agency over over their own financial future. Does that does that you know create the opportunity for them to escape domestic violence, or does it actually bring domestic violence onto them? Other areas like um, the impact of climate change on on women and how low income groups, in particular women, 
you know, are, are impacted by climate change and therefore what needs to happen in financial systems in order to, to help protect them. So increasingly, we're, we're starting to sort of broaden away from uh, just looking at women in financial services and also the impacts of, of those topics on, on the women themselves. That's a, that's a great point, Andy. And I think I might sum it up by saying financial institutions are vital to the real life needs of women customers. Um, Andy started out by mentioning that women's world banking's goal is not necessarily the proliferation of financial services, but rather the real life changes that come as a result. And um, recognizing this important role that banks play in society and in the empowerment of women and in meeting real life needs, like getting women out of violent situations or making sure her children can go to school or enabling her to grow her business. That's that's the real point and that's the real opportunity in these markets for financial institutions. And, and just a plug, Sonia's got an excellent uh, opinion piece out in American Banker, I believe. So that's hot off the press if anybody wants to take a look at that on the topic. Thank you both. And I want to highlight the point that you both made that Women's World Banking is not attempting the proliferation of financial services but rather seeing where financial services and inclusion can support women in so many different aspects of their life. In the Spotlight on Inclusion series, we had looked at the Visa Economic Empowerment Institute's research on global remittances and digital money movement, and although it wasn't necessarily the objective of the research, you ended up seeing how digitizing money movement helped with gender safety. Women who, especially in more rural areas, had to travel to go to a brick-and-mortar bank holding a large sum of cash we're ultimately at higher risk for assault. And I think this really goes to showcase the impact that digital finance can have on safety and harm reduction. Exactly right. And, um, and, and it's, it's, I guess, you know, with, with digital, it's, it's not just the, the safety aspects. It's also the accessibility of bank branches, for example. You know, if, if, if a woman has to, you know, take, take money physically to a, to a bank branch, that has a cost, right? You know, you've got to get on a bus or you've got to leave a business um, and not make the money for the day in order to, you know, to, to, to bank. So, you know, low income groups as ever are, are, are getting a raw deal and it costs them more money to, to bank than it does, you know, people in the rich world because they have fewer access to, to the, the solutions that make life easier for them. And so digital is, is a really, you know, important part of the things we're looking at. And remittances uh, play a huge role. We just need to lower the cost of of, of global remittances. So, um, so it's more equitable and more, more useful for people. Yeah, absolutely. And I know in our previous conversations, we had talked about women who had essentially, outside of these traditional systems, created their own de facto financial systems in order to support their businesses, provide for their families and their communities without necessarily participating in the formal financial sphere. And so I'm wondering from both of you, where do you think digitalization and finance can work to support these women and the systems they've already gotten accustomed to? Essentially, instead of trying to adapt these women to the legacy systems, trying to adapt the financial system to these women. I think, yeah, I think that's a great point. I'll give you one example that just pops into my head. We did some qualitative research with women in Indonesia, and we asked them the question, do you save in anything besides cash? Um, and so we asked specifically, do you save in gold or jewelry, which is something we see all over the world, people buying gold or jewelry as a form of savings. And these women in Indonesia said, oh, yeah, yeah, we save in, in, um, in gold. And I said, 
oh, so like, where do you keep it in your house or do you wear it? Um, and these women said, oh, no, 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 we don't, we don't keep it at home. We go to the jewelry store and we bring our cash there. We give the jeweler our cash and he sets aside the jewelry for us and he knows it's ours. And then if we ever need the money back, we go back to the jewelry store and we ask to sell the jewelry. Well, obviously they've created a de facto savings account in an informal way. And um, your question is exactly right. How might financial services meet those real needs that we see met in informal financial services? And in this case, when we probed deeper, we found that these women were using this informal way of saving in assets in order to make sure they couldn't take it out easily, number one. So they wanted it to be actually not easy. They wanted it to be like, um, you know, like an illiquid asset. And they also wanted it for themselves, but they didn't want to have to feel duplicitous when it came to telling their family they didn't have money for a particular purchase. So when her husband came to her and said, do you have money for something I want to buy? She could say, oh, no, no, I don't have any money and be honest about it. And so when it comes to digital financial services or saving in a bank, um, I might say to a banker, what about a commitment savings account where somebody can't actually take out the money without significant penalties? That's a win for the bank because the money can sit on their books and earn interest for them. And it's also a win for the woman depositor who might want to keep the money in the bank for a period of time until she has a useful lump sum to use. There was a study just over a decade ago in Uganda that showed that people who used primarily informal financial services lost 22% of their money over the course of a year. And so when we talk about the value of moving from informal to formal financial services, there's a real financial benefit for people as long as we can meet those other non-financial needs that are making them choose the informal services. There's, there's a, another interesting example that springs to mind. Sonia will be able to talk about this better than I can, but it, it leaps to mind because it, 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 it's an example of moving from, from a digital environment into a, a cash environment where, where we, we, we did some research in, in India, Indonesia, and looked at the role of social, social commerce. So, you know, using Facebook and WhatsApp and, and other channels among informal sort of businesses, micro-businesses, uh, women-owned businesses that were becoming fully digitized through, through these, these channels. And yet when the payment was taken, right, Sonia, it, was, it, was, it, was, it went straight back to cash. And so you had this opportunity of, of, of you know, women were operating in a, in a in formal kind of digital environment, but then reverting back to, to sort of old habits, which, which didn't do anybody any good. Do you want to talk more about that, Sonia? Yeah, that's exactly right. The research that we did in India, Indonesia, and Mexico showed that all of these entrepreneurs, and even more so with COVID and lockdowns, all of these entrepreneurs were adopting e-commerce platforms or Facebook to engage with their customers or WhatsApp in some way. And they were doing all of their marketing and communication and negotiating with their customers on digital using a smartphone. And then when it came to the actual transaction, they switched over to cash or even worse, they switched to a very inefficient way of collecting money through a digital channel. For example, there was one woman who told us in Mexico, she gives her customer her 15 digit account number 
and asks her customer to bring cash to a convenience store and give it to the cashier, tell the cashier the 15-digit account number that they want to deposit in. The cashier does the deposit, but then gives the, the customer a receipt. And the customer has to take a picture with her mobile phone of the receipt and send that picture to the business owner to confirm payment. This is a tremendously inefficient transaction, whether it's through cash or whether it's through some sort of bank transfer that is cash, bank transfer, and back to some analog confirmation. So this is a huge opportunity for financial services, but they have to be convenient for the entrepreneurs. And that's what we heard over and over again as they switched to cash because there wasn't a convenient way of doing the transfer that, was, that worked both for the business owner and for the customer. This is why disaggregating data and understanding as a financial service provider how women are operating is so important. You know, you've got, you've got a billion, billion people market here. This is not insignificant, right? This is, this is huge. And, and, and very little is known about this, this group of people, but they are saving, they are transacting, they are, you know, forming collectives and making reasonably complex financial decisions in an informal way and by understanding them a part of our job is really to sort of shine a spotlight on that and show the opportunity to financial services providers so that they they start to get interested in capturing this market because because it is big and it's currently not getting the service it needs from financial providers so understanding that is is critical and then having people in place who who will develop financial tools and products to address that is, is really important, but it starts with data. Yeah, sex desegregated data also has this added benefit of um, being able to audit for where financial services are not working for women. So Andy talked about designing for women, but we also can use sex desegregated data to look at, for example, women's versus men's repayment rates. There was a study by BBVA in Spain that looked at women versus men and repayment rates, and they found that women were more likely to repay their first loan from BBVA, which is a big problem because it shows that the bank is not being risky enough with giving credit to women borrowers. There are some systematic inequalities that drive those decisions that are like, for example, women are less likely to have audited financial statements. But if it results in this inequity in the distribution of credit, it's contributing to, in this case, for example, the $1.7 trillion gender gap in women's versus men's credit among small and medium-sized enterprises. So that's just an example of um, of a way that sex disaggregated data can help to audit the results that the bank wants to see and with impacts on the bottom line of the bank as well. They're able to improve their repayment rates overall. Absolutely. And I think that's a really key point to make that these in inclusive policies that drive women's economic empowerment are not only, you know, good PR looks or a good slogan to have, but really are profitable ventures for the bank, the lending institution or whatever it may be. These efforts are sustainable and scalable, and centering women in that is really successful for economic growth, not only for the women themselves, but for their surrounding communities as well. I think earlier we had mentioned the G2P programs that emerged during COVID, specifically in India, with 
India being a really good case study with Adhar, their national digital identity system, and seeing how digital ID can be really instrumental for economic growth. Could you discuss more about your research in India surrounding these programs? Yeah, I can. I can uh, take take that. So, so India is actually a really, really good example of of, of a number of things. Um, I mean, you, you mentioned India as a uh, you know quick, quickly acted during the the COVID, you know, the initial COVID stages um, and lockdown to enact GTP programs. Um, other countries did it as well. I believe Colombia was was another one. There were there were several others, but but India was was one of sort of the the, the first and the biggest to target groups with with COVID relief payments. India is such a good example because I I think the expression is it fixed the roof before before it started raining. They they uniquely sort of created this sort of low income sort of debit account for for low income people called Jandan. I'm probably not saying it correctly. It's um, PMJDY, I, I believe the acronym is, but it's but it's called Jandan in in, in our world. But they also coupled that with the Aadhaar system, which, as you know, is is the unique identification for, for for Indians, and then added that to mobile delivery. So they called it the Jam Trinity. I, li- I like that that expression, Jam. But it's the Jam Trinity, and and what that did with the 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 unique you know identification, the de- digital delivery, and the the low income account enabled the government to directly target women with a digital payment, and the government targeted women. Because it saw that women were the social glue of any community, the the gatekeepers of the household finances, and this was backed up after the first lockdown in India was was over, and there was there was a really it just it just sort of really sort of demonstrated that point. Um, as soon as lockdown ended, there were queues of men at the liquor store uh, to go and you know stock up on on alcohol um, and cigarettes, whereas the women went off and bought food and you know household goods and and so on and so forth quite an extreme example but you know our research bears out time and time again that, that when women are the household gatekeepers of, of finances you know food gets put on the table water's clean children go to school communities tend to, to to thrive and so the indian government made that decision and they they had good reasons for doing that to target the women with with a digital payment as a result of that in the first six months of the pandemic india opened something like 25 million new accounts um, through these digital payments, most of that was was focused on on women, and so you can see the incredible power of some of these programs to um, to, to to include more more people. And so what we're doing now is we're working with one of the largest banks that that administer these Jandan accounts to to take this further and create a, a specific savings proposition. And what it does is it nudges women to save in their Jandan accounts. They, Sonia said with informal systems, they're saving anyway, but they're saving in tins or under their beds or, you know, and, and that can be stolen. So what we're doing is we're, we're, we're nudging them to save in a bank, which is, you know, quite, quite difficult because of years of neglect. Women are saying, well, banks aren't for us. They're for rich people. I don't know how to open an account. I, you know, I'm, I'm semi-literate or illiterate. You know, it's, it's, it doesn't work for me. But here you have their Jandan accounts, and we're making small nudges to, to, to help them save um, very, very small amounts. But they're doing it regularly, which can build deposits to help build financial resilience. So in the next economic shock, they have some money set aside um, to help them out. That takes off pressure off, off the government economy because they're not needing to sort of put emergency payments into, into so many people. What we're also adding to this is an overdraft facility. So, so women are sort of incentivized to save because it gives them access to an overdraft facility. 
that overdraft facility gives them a little bit of leeway if things do go wrong and they do need extra money. But it also most importantly helps them um, build up a credit footprint because they're accessing credit. And now they've got a, f- a credit footprint, they're able to access other financial products like loans and insurance and, and what have you. So it's, it's these small incremental steps that start with creating good financial behavior and, and engaging with, with the women themselves that can actually start to create some significant value. And, you know, you, you, you talked about, you know, the 1.7 trillion credit gap for, for, for women-owned SMEs. Here's another one. If, if women were um, to participate fully, you know, and, and, and have um, access uh, to bank accounts, I think the figure I've seen is, is something like $2 trillion worth of new deposits flowing into the, into the financial system. And, and that's the economic growth that, that the world needs right now. So, you know, this, these are not small sums. These are significant sums if we can, if we can find the right sort of tools and systems to, um, to include more people in, in, in the formal financial system. Andy, you mentioned mobile, and I think it's um, imperative that we point out the mobile opportunity in India as well. I mean, the GSMA Global Gender Gap Report showed that more than two-thirds of women in India now have their own mobile phone, which is just astounding to me because um, a few years ago, if you said mobile money for women in India, somebody would have laughed at you. But school closures and learn from home and all of these COVID-related social changes meant that there was this critical mass of women online for the first time in the past couple of years as they helped their kids navigate virtual learning. And this social shift can turn into a massive opportunity uh, to get women plugged into their finances through their mobile device. And in, as you said at the beginning of this conversation, in ways that are more convenient to them, take less time, more comfortable. I think that's really exciting. Yeah, definitely really exciting. And I think the point that you make of designing in ways that are more comfortable for the targeted user base and meeting women where they already are. We had mentioned this earlier, but the idea of making the financial system work for women rather than the other way around. And as you said, Andy, we're not dealing with small sums here. This is a huge group of people with needs that really do need to be addressed. So one of the interesting things about Women's World Banking is the women in leadership programs that you all have. And I think a common theme in everything we've discussed here is that women's involvement is not something to consider at the last step or as an add-on, but really needs to be baked into the entire process, whether it be product design, research on the engineering team, in the deployment of the initiatives, really every step of the way. And as we mentioned at the outset, if it's not made for women or if it's made to be gender neutral, it's made for men. And so I'd love to talk more about these women in leadership programs and how they came to be. This, this program was very much um, created because the organization, very much like its investment fund, needed to walk the talk. And all, all our research sort of pointed to the fact that in, in the financial sector, that there, there are very few women in leadership positions. You know, I think I think is it Jane Jane Fraser at City. You know, was was among the first women at a global bank to 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 take the CEO role. You know, so so there there are you know there are imbalances in 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 financial services, which I I know that financial services providers are looking to address. And so we we want to help. And so we created this this program called Women in Leadership a, a number of years ago, which seeks to take um you know emerging leaders in financial services providers and 
give them the the skills and development opportunities to become the leaders they want to be and and take on a bigger role within their organizations so that when they reach these positions they can start to represent the voices of you know unbanked and underserved women in their organizations and you know in our experience financial services providers are very open to this We've recently expanded it to regulators, and I, I forget the figure, but it's something like 13 regulators, 13 central banks around the world are run by women, just 13 or something like that, which is a tiny percentage of um, the number of um, central banks around the world. So, so you know, how, how can we expect our financial services systems to be equitable when the, the, the regulators and the policymakers aren't themselves? So we, we extend this to, to regulators and we we're actually recruiting for, for the LDR, the leadership um, and diversity for regulators program right now. And what we do is we, we, we run it with Oxford University and we develop programs to help emerging leaders to develop their leadership skills. But what's unique about our program is we, we invite a senior male ally to to sponsor them and to support them and and to take an interest in their careers. And so we find that that sort of allyship really creates the the opportunity for the women leaders to to develop and emerge. What we're also looking to do with the regulators is build in helpful policy making um, skills. So, you know, we're seeing a huge amount of emerging emerging opportunities around things like government issued stablecoins, blockchain, fintechs in general. And regulatory bodies are, 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 are sort of scrambling to catch up with technology because it's moving so quickly. So, so we want to start to sort of help policymakers develop the skill sets to, to develop in those areas as well. The idea is when they go back to their markets, we'll work with them more directly um, to help them develop policies, which will then create the scale we need to to try and address some of these um, you know financial gaps that we're seeing. So that's kind of the LDR program in a in a nutshell. Yeah, thank you. And your question on how can systems be equitable when the creators of them are not an accurate representation of the user base is really key, and I think can be pretty easily tied to data ethics and algorithmic bias, really emphasizing that need for the diverse creative team. Before we close out, I do want to discuss Women's World Banking research surrounding use of artificial intelligence and machine learning for financial inclusion, and specifically as it relates to algorithmic bias. So Sonia, I know you had recently published a paper on this. Could you tell us a little bit more about it? Sure. Yeah, that's a great segue because as part of this research, we did do a LinkedIn search where we looked for the people who were the developers and the data scientists and the coders for major digital credit companies operating in emerging markets especially. And we had a hard time finding any who were A, women, or B, actually located in the countries where the credit was being deployed, which we think is just a huge problem for representation and also for the resulting products. When we looked at new credit models that use AI and machine learning to evaluate the creditworthiness of applicants, we found a number of different sources of bias. One is bias that comes from the data itself. We know that women are less likely to have a data trail on which credit can be allocated. And so automatically, women are disadvantaged when they apply for credit. They're less likely to be visible. Um, Then when it comes to the actual creating of an algorithm, 
the coders and developers and data scientists come with a set of biases. And they tend to assume that those things, we know from unconscious bias research, they tend to assume that those things that they hold that, that they aren't able to acknowledge end up making it into the code, which is the problem. When the algorithms are trained using the data as well, we find an imbalance of data, men versus women, it tends to fall along the lines of more men asking for this kind of credit versus women. Um, we also know that some of the biggest predictors that companies use of creditworthiness can fall along gender lines. So for example, GPS location. Women tend to have more unpaid care responsibilities at home. And so when they run businesses, sometimes they do so from home in the midst of their unpaid care responsibilities and spend less time at their business location, whereas men spend more time at their business location. But in many companies that we talked with, GPS data tended to be used as a high predictor of repayment behavior. And then once the algorithm is deployed, there are ways to look for bias that maybe you didn't see before. For example, um, repayment rate between men versus women or loan size, men versus women, or the loan terms like the interest rate. Are women receiving a higher interest rate than men are? I think these end up sounding very technical when we talk about them but they're actually not when, when you translate them into uh, very basic concepts that banks understand, bank executives especially. So like bank executives say they want to be fair. Close to 90% of bank executives says, say they're going to use AI and machine learning in the next five years, according to Deloitte. And so we know that this is on the radar of executives, and there are really easy ways to translate those biases that we saw that are very technical into language that bankers can understand, like parity in loan rates or parity in, in repayment behavior, men versus women. You can also translate this into other underrepresented groups, like we talked to a lender who was concerned about applicants from an ethnic minority and said that was something that he was concerned about because he was worried that the regulator was going to see that and come down hard on them. And so they wanted to pursue fairness in this area. What we've seen in the U.S. is that um, U.S. regulators are paying attention. Um, there's some regulation that came out of the, that came out in GDPR on this topic. And so we know it's going to be on the minds of regulators as they move forward into our digital finance future. We know that financial institutions want to um, take notice and want to be forward thinking in this space. Um, and we know they want to be ethical. And so this is a space where women's world banking is investing a lot of its resources, both in research, but also coming alongside of financial institutions and helping them to understand how they can audit for and then mitigate bias. Yes, and as you say, AI and ML is on the radar or is already here. And the power of AI and ML is that it can really help bridge these massive gaps in finance, but if done incorrectly without addressing both intentional and unintentional biases, it really has the potential to amplify these gaps. And as you say, banks and FIs do want to use AI and ML for good. There's not an intentionally malicious attempt happening here. And so the work and research that Women's World Banking does surrounding both intentional and unintentional bias in these algorithms and emerging technologies is really instrumental and hopefully is being taken into consideration. 
Now, we've discussed a lot of topics here today, but before we wrap up, is there anything you'd like to mention to our listeners, any upcoming work from Women's World Banking we should keep our eye out for? Yeah, th- thanks for the opportunity to, um, to plug a few things. So other than the fact that we're recruiting actively now for our Leadership and Diversity for Regulators, regulators program, which I, I talked about earlier, we also run a series of um, webinars around practical topics that we're, we're finding interesting at the moment. And um, one coming up is on March the 4th. It's called, uh, the series is called Making Finance Work for Women. And this one is about male allyship and uh, what executives can do in financial services organizations to make their um, organizations more diverse, more inclusive, and more, more equal. So, um, you know, we'd appreciate the support and people turning up to, to listen to, to some of the speakers there. Thank you. And I look forward to following that series. So clearly Women's World Banking has a lot on their plate, but really when we boil it down, it comes to accounting for women and the un- and underbanked every step of the way. We talked about being able to use the power of digital finance to meet women where they are, because despite being left out of the financial system, they are creating their own. There is that culture of savings, and women tend to have the attachment to their communities and a goal of empowering and supporting their networks. Women's World Banking have been really exemplary in showcasing how financial inclusion for women does not just stop at finance. It actively impacts every part of their lives which in turn affects their communities around them, bringing in that multiplier effect that we had discussed earlier. Successful initiatives for inclusion really require intentionality at all levels, and women need to be incorporated and accounted for by design. You both have clearly been champions of this cause, and I personally am really looking forward to seeing what the team at Women's World Banking does next. Sonia, Andy, thank you both for joining us today on this episode of FRT. Thanks for having us. It's been fun. Thank you. Looking ahead on FRT, we'll be joined by Starling Trust and MIS, discussing conduct, culture, and new machine learning tools to help advance values in financial services. We hope you'll be able to join us for that episode. I'm Ina Lolch, and thanks for listening to FRT.